Hey, Hales, what do you say when you see a cute computer program? What? Doll. Uh, again, what? You know, like, when you see something cute, you say, like, aw, but with a little D and apostrophe in front of it, like, doll. There's also the recording software called a daw. I can honestly say I think that is the weakest, most convoluted opening joke you've told yet. Uh, whatever. You're no fun. Morning. The following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you whenever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson. And I'm Haley. And welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy. Famous artists he'll never be able to play like. And topics or tips about guitars and music recording. So, it's an exciting week here. These studio upgrades that we've been talking about for the past couple episodes are all finished. Uh, we are, yeah, we're back to full functionality, not limited to just two channels. Um, and it's better than it was before, for sure. This is definitely a huge upgrade. I know you, for one, were very impressed with the fact that you can have your own headphone mix now. Yeah, I do like that. <laughs> Haley really doesn't like to hear her own voice when we record. So, normally, I mean, we would do this really ghetto way of recording where she just wouldn't have a headphone mix at all she couldn't hear anything and then uh when i had sound demos to play back for i'd have to like unplug the headphone mix and play it through the mains i really can't stand hearing my own voice i'm well, sorry now you don't have to it's okay <laughs> it's a lot better now uh it was a lot of work though it uh it took the better part of like two weeks um it was probably about 16 hours or so worth of actual dedicated work um but between like shipping and delivery times, troubleshooting, and actual adult work and sleeping, it took quite a bit of time. The entire time you were going, when is it going to get here? When's it going to get here? This got here. I'm so excited, but I can't do this without that. And every time you'd get home from work, you'd go full goblin mode working on the studio. I couldn't even get you to change out of your work clothes when you got home. You just ran straight to the studio. Well, I was excited. I mean, and yes, any of you that have ever ordered gear online, especially when you need like a specific cable to hook it up, have to understand my pain of like, ah, yes, the brain, the big ticket thing got here, but I don't have this one like $5 cable to connect there, it. There is this very precious thing called patience and you lack that. Yeah, I don't have it and that's fine. But it's, it's finally done, and it is easily worth it. This episode, we're going to go through the whole process, so hopefully you guys can learn something as well. Uh, we're not even going to do any news this week. Uh, it's going to be a long one, so buckle up, grab some popcorn, grab a blanket, maybe even grab a bottle of wine and sit in the bathtub if you want to pretend this is a true crime podcast. That's what people do with true crime podcasts, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's what I would do if I liked wine. <laughs> Well, this is going to be a long one, but hopefully you guys will get something out of this using our upgrade as a template. So, as we've been alluding to, I have been going ham upgrading the studio. It's been a lot of work, literally over a hundred separate cables just for the desk alone, but ultimately I'm really happy with it. I know we're more of a guitar podcast here, but if you guys are ever looking into getting into recording or creating your own tracks, this is hopefully going to be a great resource to give you guys some ideas and maybe serve as like a little guide. 
Um, I just typed up like a huge blog post, much more than I normally do on the website, so that if you guys want to go there and check it out and have something to reference back to instead of listening to our beautiful voices, um, feel free to do that. There's also some pictures that explain some concepts that we're going to go into here in a little more depth. Now, we did talk about a home studio setup once in our recording tip section of episode 34, but we didn't really spend a lot of time on it or give it the attention to detail that a topic like this actually commands. So for this episode, we're going to go on a deep dive into the whole subject of home studios while using this studio as an example. I'm really excited to talk about this because if you look online, you can really find a multitude of YouTube videos or blog posts about home studio setups, but they're really sitting at two complete opposite ends of the spectrum, in my opinion. Oh yeah. Before we started, I figured I'd do some research by watching videos on my own so I could be a little more help than just someone holding a flashlight or cables. But all I could find were two types of videos. One, here's how you set up a home studio for under $500. And it was like, hey, a two-channel interface, a mic, a computer, and headphones or studio monitors are all you need. Yeah, that's one end of the spectrum, and while that's technically true, the results that you're going to get out of a studio like that are pretty lackluster in my opinion. I mean, they're great for getting started, don't get me wrong. If you just want to record one or two tracks at a time, say like a single mic and an acoustic guitar and a vocal mic, that will meet the intent and the functionality, but it's also pretty basic and you don't have a lot of control over your sound. Gonna be honest, when I watched those videos at first, I was getting a little mad. Like, he could have done oh all boy. of this for $500 instead. That's all we needed. <laughs> and then I really started thinking about all you do in here. And I was like, oh, there's no MIDI keyboard. There's no rat gear. Some of them didn't even include a DAW. You making fun of my joke? Yeah. I work so hard on those cold open jokes. I work so hard to put comedy on the table and you make a mockery of it. I mean, they are supposed to make us laugh, right? I'm just kind of laughing at you, not with you. Oh, wow. Okay, you're going there. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, those videos, in my opinion, while they're good for people that are just starting out, like, I don't know anything about music recording type thing, they really tend to miss some of the important parts of the process and the setup, and if you follow those to a T, you'll find yourself bottlenecked by something like channel counts, recording quality, or a modular setup that can accommodate different artists and situations that you really just don't have with those videos. And the second type of video I saw were videos of people that had an insane budget. I'm talking like tens of thousands of dollars. People that are just rolling in cash, doing this as a primary job, and likely using a combination of like small business loans or sponsorship money to build the most decked out studios I've ever seen. While those are certainly a lot more entertaining to watch, uh, I looked and looked a lot more kitted out. They didn't really seem attainable for most people. Yeah, I've seen those too. Uh, people with rack units that cost more than my entire studio combined because they've got all vintage gear, countless channel strips and mic pre's, a bunch of synths, all kinds of gear that your average working musician simply can't afford because we have to do these things called eating and paying rent. I'd say those are pretty important for sure. <laughs> so this episode, we're going to try to straddle that line. The setup isn't going to be something for the raw beginner, but it's also not going to be a money is no object studio either. If you're somebody who's looking to take your recording setup to the next level without ripping out your walls and approaching national deficit levels of debt, you're in the right place. So let's start with the background. I first got into recording back in 2015. 
I had a small little studio set up in my parents' garage that used admittedly pretty terrible gear. Um, my studio monitors were the speakers from an old RCA stereo. My only mic was a weird dynamic mic that wasn't even XLR. It was just like a quarter inch. Uh, my mixer was a $60 eBay special uh, made out of nothing but the finest Chineseium. Uh, my interface was a two-in, two-out Behringer-type deal, and my computer was my mom's old laptop. I mean, I was recording in audacity, for Pete's sake. <laughs> I'll be honest, as much as I felt like it was super cool and fun, I didn't really get anything of substance done there. Uh, a, an unfinished garage is terrible for a studio environment. You've got a reflective cement floor, reflective cement walls, a metal door that lets every sound from the outside mm -hmm. in. It was horrible. Yeah, I can't even imagine the reverb in there. Oh god, it was it was awful. But it was how I started. And while it's easy to look back at it and think like, why did I even do this? It was still worth something to me because it set the foundation and it got me into recording and taught me the fundamentals. Granted, those fundamentals were totally bottlenecked and wrong, but they were still somewhat present. I would say your first approach at a real studio was when we moved into our first apartment. Yeah, uh, it was, but before then, I got my first studio job and I saw what a real studio actually looked like. I mean, coming from a garage to this studio was an insane change. It was uh, Studio Live USA in Oviedo, Florida, and it was such a big wake-up call for me. My boss, Dave, had a 64-channel Neve recall console. It was a beautiful-sounding mixer as the linchpin of the studio. He had a really beefy 24-core Mac for the computer, a separate tracking room and recording room with acoustic treatment in both. The layout was just impeccable. The hardware was also nothing to be sneered at. He had multiple Pro Tools HD interfaces linked together to use every channel on the mixer as an input or an output in Pro Tools, insane amounts of vintage rack gear, a mic locker to accommodate nine channels of drums in addition to a full band. This was where I really learned what a pro-level setup was. However, at the same time, this was also most likely a studio whose total cost was easily clearing $100,000, if not more. Easily out of reach for somebody like me who's just recording as a hobby and as a side gig at that time. Suffice it to say, I've seen both ends of the spectrum. So your next step was after we moved in together, right? I remember you got your first set of studio monitors, a few mics, an old interface, with multiple channels, and an actual mixing board. Yep, uh, I'll see if I can't find a picture of it to throw up on the website as like a throwback. I don't think I have a picture of like my very first setup. Um, if I do, I don't know if I'd even want to share that. That's like a big amount of shame for I me. I haven't even seen that before. Yeah, it was it was bad. Um, but I'll, I'll probably throw this one of when we first moved in together on the website. Uh, this was after I got my first adult job with a real paycheck and some disposable income to spend on some studio equipment. This setup consisted of a gaming laptop used as a computer, which had a bit more beef. Uh, it was able to run some more complicated projects than my mom's old laptop that I was using in the garage. I started using Cubase instead of Cakewalk or Reaper or Audacity or whatever I was using. I had a Behringer Firepower FCA 1616 interface, so I could record up to eight channels at once with eight separate outputs, and I had a Behringer X2222 USB mixer to actually mix on an analog board. That's not something that's required by any means, by the way. It's just a preference that I've kept from my first studio job that I feel makes my workflow more efficient than mixing in the box. Actually... That video you showed me of you and your friend Dylan in the garage screaming, was that your old setup? 
with uh, we were screaming rock and roll McDonald's. Yeah. Yep, that was. Okay, I I vaguely remember that. Yeah, I, I I'm not posting that video. Oh, please don't. <laughs> but you see, you know how bad it was. Then. Yeah, it it's literally a garage. It doesn't show much of the equipment from because there can wasn't remember. much in yeah. the ways of equipment. <laughs> see, I didn't even consider that to be like a. Uh, a studio, no offense. I mean, so I didn't think about it. <laughs> at the time, for me, I was like, yes, this is my studio and I'm proud of this. Like, now I look back on that and I'm like, that was nothing. That was like taking a radio flyer, like, wagon, taping a steering wheel to it and calling it a car. I mean, everyone has to start somewhere, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. What I'm trying to think, and I honestly don't feel like there's another real step from there. You sort of just upgraded piece by piece since then since the first apartment yeah uh some of that gear i was still using up until about two weeks ago uh, i've been running the same mixer for years actually i upgraded the interface to a Tascam uh, 1608 a while back i got some better monitors and a subwoofer better computer and i slowly added outboard gear piece by piece and not to mention moving into an actual room for your studio having it not in the living room of our <laughs> one bedroom apartment i remember having to hide in the bedroom and make zero noise while you were recording while you were recording in there and that was it was not a fun time for me at least yeah it wasn't the best setup but that's where i'd say i actually started to get stuff done so that's the background let's get into what's actually happened over the past two weeks okay so my current setup that i've been running more or less the same for the last year or so has served me pretty well uh, the brain of everything has been a desktop computer that I upgraded with the intention of using it primarily for music production. Although you're no stranger to playing hours of dirt or a set of corso on it. <laughs> That's a nice perk, not gonna lie. Um, my interface uh, up to this point has still been that Tascam, 16 inputs and 8 outputs, although I was ever really using 10 of the inputs. Um, my mixer has been the same old Behringer X2222 USB, which was also doubling as another interface, more on that later. I've got a few pieces of outboard gear for the stuff I use the most, like a mic pre, a compressor, gate and de-esser, and a Pultec style EQ. I've got a MIDI controller, a drum pad, an electric drum kit, two notes for capturing guitars, and a multitude of mics, reamp boxes, and DI boxes for instrument capture. So far, this has worked pretty well for me, all in all. I've been able to record the podcast, my own projects, as well as have clients in for recording. The general flow of things is that any instruments or mics come in through the Tascam to be recorded individually, where I can apply plugins and any other nonsense, then back out through the Tascam, through the patch bay, where they can be routed to outboard hardware, and then into an individual channel on the mixer. The mixer itself is actually a two-in, two-out interface, where its inputs are whatever the mixer is feeding to its main outputs, and the outputs are the main outs. Uh, this is my ideal workflow, but it presents a few issues. A, I'm a Windows user. Windows gang rise up. What? You heard me. <laughs> I've never seen anyone have, like, loyalty to an operating system like that. Oh, no, except that for Linux lie. people. Linux people. Yeah. Uh, there's nobody that uses Linux that is just like, eh, yeah, it's just an operating system. Like, everybody's like, I love Linux. <laughs> Linux is my life. Well... Normally, the question is like Windows or Mac. Um, the issue with Windows is that it doesn't have that neat little aggregate audio device function that Mac does in its core audio, where you can combine audio interfaces together. Windows only uses a single audio interface at a time. 
The way that I got around this was using ASIO for All, a free open source ASIO driver online that actually wraps multiple ASIO drivers together to trick your computer into thinking any sound cards you have connected are one device. And that presented some problems, didn't it? Namely the clocking? Oh yeah, exactly. So to understand this, we've got to look at how an interface actually works. It helps to sort of start here because interfaces are the centerpiece of your studio that actually turns your beautiful music into ones and zeros your computer can understand. In its most basic form, computer data is stored in binary bits, ons or offs. While our audio track might look like a nice and curvy sine wave, our computer takes this audio track and converts this sine wave into a rough square wave shape due to these ons and offs. The way your audio interface does this is using two factors, sample rate and bit depth. The sample rate is how many times per second the interface takes a snapshot of the sound measured in kilohertz, sort of like frames in a video. Standard CD quality is 44.1 kilohertz, meaning the digital sample is taken 44,100 times per second. Sample rates on most devices can go all the way up to 192 kilohertz, meaning 192,000 snapshots per second, or like frames of audio creates a much more detailed representation of your audio signal the higher you go. Now if this sounds confusing, don't worry, I will post pictures on the blog post on the website for this episode, so if you really want to get into the nitty gritty nerdy stuff, you can check it out there, see like a visual representation of how sample rates work. Just know that the higher the sample rate is, the higher quality and a more accurate conversion overall. A bit depth refers to how detailed each individual snapshot or frame is. So if I use a bit depth of 16, the computer is using 16 bits to represent each sample. If I use a bit depth of 24, it's using 24 bits to represent each sample. Once again, higher is better and more detailed. Higher bit depths will also give you more dynamic range to work with, with 16-bit only giving you 96 decibels from your quietest sound to your loudest sound, and 24-bit giving you a whopping 144 decibels of dynamic range. If you're having issues with clipping, increasing your bit depth could help. Okay. Digital audio is cool and all, but what does that have to do with clocking? Oh yeah, I didn't really answer that, did I? <laughs> well, our interfaces use something called a word clock to understand when to take each digital snapshot. Sure, 192 kilohertz means we're taking a sample 192,000 times a second, but when do we start that timer? When an interface is working alone, clocks don't matter as much as long as they're consistent. The clock can start or stop that 192 kilohertz sampling at any time. As long as it evenly divides that second 192,000 times, you've got an accurate sample. When multiple interfaces are working together, that's when the problems arise. Imagine I put a button in front of each of us and I tell you, hey, we're going to press this button every second. We need to press it at exactly the same time. Okay, easy enough. Yeah, because you can see me. But what if we go in different rooms and we try to do the same thing? Well, we could just press it every time the second hand on a clock ticks. Okay, but what if our clocks that we're looking at are a half second off from each other? Have you ever tried to set two clocks to exactly the same time down to the second? Okay, yeah, that's pretty difficult. And over time, they would get even more out of sync because they lose seconds at different rates. Now you see the issue. When two audio interfaces are trying to work together with their own internal clocks, they can't take the sample at exactly the same time because neither one knows when the other is taking the sample. This clock mismatch can result in latency, among other types of issues. And that was the actual issue with your old setup, right? There'd be a little bit of latency at the start, and they would slowly lose sync to where after like half an hour of recording or so, you'd have, you'd have latency of almost a full second. Yep. 
Yeah, exactly. Audio is coming in through the Tascam and out through the Behringer. If I was just using one or the other, it wouldn't have been a problem, but both together at the same time created clocking issues. Okay. The other issue was while the Tascam was a great quality interface, it could do up to 96 kilohertz at 24-bit, the Behringer was not, and it was only capable of 48 kilohertz at 24-bit. Since both interfaces were working together, the Tascam was limited by the Behringer's sample rate. Now, this episode is not going to be a rag on Behringer. Yes, they've got a bad reputation. Behringer and its parent company, Music Tribe, have made some bad quality gear, especially in the past. But if you're on a budget and you understand the constraints of the gear, the attraction of Behringer gear is it can get you a functioning setup for a fraction of the cost of some more premium options. That's a personal decision that you, as the ultimate user of your equipment, has to make. Back in the early 2000s, uh, Behringer equipment wasn't the most reliable thing in the world but I've been running this same mixer for four years and it hasn't died on me or had a channel fail yet. I will say that the sonic quality of the channel strips isn't that great, but it's survived daily use pretty well. You're telling me I can't rag on anyone this episode? You did enough of that during the Vertex oh, episode. come on. You're on a pessimism break for a little bit. Now, in my opinion, all that nerd talk we just went through serves to outline the current central use case of the studio. Eight inputs, eight outputs, analog mixing with multi-track recording. This setup allowed me to use the MIDI inputs on the Tascam to capture my electric drum kit for use with drum plugins. The sheer amount of inputs allowed me to capture basically whatever I wanted, uh, short of a full band plus drums at the same time. The eight outputs allowed me to assign eight individual tracks to eight channels on the mixer for analog mixing. And my patch bay allowed me to run my analog hardware in between to route it wherever I needed with the signal chain. So. When you're upgrading a studio or even building a new one, I'm not going to lie to you guys, your limiting factor is going to be your budget in most cases. Just like everything else, we're at the whims of the almighty pocketbook. Now, don't think that you have to get everything you need at once either. You can always get the bare minimum you need for a functioning studio, like a computer, monitors or headphones, an interface, and a couple mics at first, and slowly add more pieces as you go. Going about it this way forces you to slow down and really do your research to make sure everything you're doing will work together in exactly the way that you want it to. Before we get into the actual upgrade, though, let's get into actually setting up a new studio for you guys who have never done it before. Obviously, you're going to need space to have your studio. Ideally, this is going to be a separate room, not in the middle of your living room in your apartment. Okay, I'm feeling the shade there. Uh-huh. As annoying as it is to your family members or roommates, putting your studio in a common area is actually worse for you. Most modern living rooms have non-traditional wall patterns or some sort of open concept that leads to a kitchen. They have large windows as well. Overall, a bad idea for sound quality. Ideally, you're looking for a room with four walls and a single, smaller window if you have any windows at all. This will be easier to acoustically treat and also provide you your own working space for you, and especially your clients. Yeah, I don't know about you, but if I walk into somebody's home for their business, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But I feel uncomfortable when I'm in their personal space as part of it. Uh, it's I remember, a little off-putting. Yeah, I remember going to a barber shop in my grandparents' town over the summers when I was a kid. And this lady ran her barber shop out of her home, which isn't bad, don't get me wrong. It's a great way to save on overhead, and it can be professional. But her barber chairs were in her living room. It was a professional setup, like actual barber chairs, not just a folding chair. There were actual sinks, full-length mirrors, the works. It just made 
me feel uncomfortable and like I was invading her personal space. Even though she intended people to go in there, it just made me uncomfortable. It's definitely not something you want as a business owner. Exactly. So place your studio in its own room so you've got privacy and the maximum amount of noise isolation. The next step is acoustic treatment. It's an often overlooked step. Let's face it, it's pretty boring. Nobody wants to spend money on foam pads to stick to the wall. Yeah, especially when you have much more complicated stuff. Like, uh, I forget how much it was to get all the pads to acoustically treat this room. I want to say it was like... Don't even, don't even, don't even tell me. No, they need to know. (laughs) They need an expectation. If you haven't acoustically treated before, it's not going to be a $20 project. Like, I did most of this DIY and, uh... I think it was still like a little over 200 bucks to treat everything, maybe more. And that was getting away with the bare minimum. But it's not fun to spend that on acoustic treatment when you could get another pedal or another mic. Like it's definitely, (sighs) think about how often you're going to use that pedal or that mic though, right? You might not be using it every day, but every time you come in your studio, you're going to be using that acoustic treatment. Right. It's something that you need to spend your budget on for sure. It's important. The the difference is also very obvious. Uh, Carson's studio is in a room that's the same shape and size as my own office. The only difference is that his is treated and mine isn't. If you walk into my office and talk, you can hear the reflections and the problems of the room, but his studio is much more acoustically dead. The benefit of this is controlling your reflections or the natural reverb of the space. Yeah, while reverb is a great thing and it makes everything better, you want to be in control of the reverb, not limited by only the reverb of your room. Acoustic treatment is absolutely key. In this room, I've got about 60% of the total surface area covered. We're in a bit of a unique situation because we're renting, so we can't just start knocking holes in the wall. Uh, It limits us from using the heavier, larger rock wool acoustic panels. Um, But in this case, we've used an insane amount of much smaller, lighter acoustic foam that can be stuck onto the wall just using command strips. It's not the best solution, but it's better than nothing and much better than losing our security deposit. Oh yeah, oh yeah. $200 foam panels or $1,200 security (laughs) deposit. (laughs) Once you've acoustically treated your room, it's time to put in your actual studio furniture. Now, there's plenty of bona fide studio furniture you can buy. Everything from desks to chairs to tables to sofas, all kinds of nonsense. While you can buy this stuff, it's going to cost you a pretty penny. If you just look up Studio Desk online, most of these desks you'll find are anywhere from $240 for the smallest studio desk with 7 square feet of space and no neat features other than a pull-out keyboard tray all the way to almost $10,000 for a much larger desk. Now, I would temper that by saying that there are benefits to studio desks. Some of them come with dedicated rack space built into them, as well as being specially designed to make as little noise as possible, as well as supporting the immense weight of various equipment that would be placed on them. I mean, you've got... I, I wish I had weighed all the gear in here. I was collecting really weird stats, like the number of cables and stuff, just to like throw <laughs> out in this episode. But for some reason, I didn't weigh everything on the desk. I'd uh, like to know how much the rack weighs, because I'm pretty sure I can't pick that up. It's heavy. I would say it's like 80 pounds, at least. Um, but that's because of the wood that I used when I built it. It's mostly the wood. But yeah, I mean, your studio desk, a regular desk, if you think about it, you're just throwing like a computer and a keyboard and maybe a monitor on it. Um, a studio desk, you're putting rack gear, you're putting mixers, you're putting 
not only computer monitors in your computer, but monitors, MIDI controllers, like they, they're definitely built a lot more sturdily, if that's a word. I, yeah, but 10 grand for a desk is a little excessive in my opinion. I actually got Carson his current desk. It's an L-shaped desk with 16 square feet of space and it was only around $100. And what do you, I mean, it works really well for you, doesn't it? What do you think? Yeah, it's worked extremely well for me. Uh, the only thing I had to add to it after the fact was like a rotating keyboard tray for my drum pad. But other than that, it's great. Plenty of space for all kinds of activities. And it's the same deal with the chair too. You're looking at over $600 for a pretty uncomfortable looking stool style studio chair. And that's the cheapest one we could find. <laughs> that's That frightens me. I think we actually got your chair for like 70 bucks. I think actually, so. Actually, no. No? I got that chair for free. Yeah, but okay, if you're... How did you get it for free? My mom. Okay. It was her old office chair. Okay. She probably got it for about 70 bucks. Yeah, I was going to say, if but... you're... You can't... We can't tell these people, hey, if you need a studio chair, go ask Haley's mom. Well, like, see, I didn't I didn't want to lie, though. That. I mean, we got that one for free, but it cost $70. Yeah. There's, a, there's a difference. I, I can't tell a lie, okay? Yeah. I couldn't. I had to. I have standards. <laughs> All this to say, with your studio furniture, don't feel like you have to get dedicated studio furniture. Go with whatever you like as long as it meets your needs, and you'll likely save a ton of money doing so. Now that we've got our studio all set up, it's time to talk computers. This can be a bit of a confusing topic as it's generally not as cut and dry as system specs for something like video games. The first question when choosing a computer is the age old Windows or Mac debate. Oh boy. Mac is the industry standard for all that means. It is generally a pretty safe answer as they may be more optimized out of the box for editing and content creation. Macs are great quality computers, and whether you go with a desktop or a MacBook, Apple is actually at the point now where they're using the same exact CPU chips in their MacBooks as they are in their desktops, meaning you can get a very similar functionality in either package. After all of that being said, why don't you have a Mac? Uh, personal preference, really. I'm not a big fan of Macs, especially wanting to use my computer for gaming and all other kinds of nerd nonsense. Macs are generally considered ahead of Windows PCs for creators, but you also have to ask yourself, what is your Windows PC? Macs are all made by the same company and are generally released with similar specifications that meet a minimum threshold. Windows PCs, on the other hand, are manufactured by a multitude of companies. Acer, Asus, Gateway, Dell, Lenovo, and everything in between. It's kind of like the Android versus iPhone debate. Sure, a $170 Moto G Play is going to pale in comparison to a $900 iPhone 15 Plus released the same year, but those aren't designed to compete with each other. When you compare a flagship Samsung Galaxy to the latest iPhone, it's really a preference thing at that point. In my opinion, Windows PCs are better overall and can perform just as well as Macs in addition to you choosing a level of hardware that matches your budget. If you're into building PCs, this should be a pretty ven easy venture to build a Windows PC. Uh, for you nerds out there like me that know PC specs, I'm running an Intel i7-12700F, 64GB of DDR4 RAM, uh, an RTX 3060 Ti, and two M.2 NVMe drives on an Acer motherboard. These specs allow me to achieve nearly zero latency monitoring through the DAW, at least enough that it's not noticeable by me or any of the clients although they greatly exceed my chosen dog Cubase's minimum specifications. 
The minimum specifications for a DAW are really just the minimum specifications for a DAW to run. They're painfully low when compared to video game specifications, but if you want lower latency and better processing, you'll need a healthy amount of RAM with a quality CPU. One way to test this is using a program called LatencyMon that you can download for free. I'll post a screenshot of my test results in the blog post so you all can get a general idea of what you might need. If you're not a huge nerd that's into specs... Okay, you're just salty because I built your PC for you. No, you know what? You know why that happened? Why? I said I wanted to learn how to build my PC. Mm -hmm. I want to put the parts in. And you took over the project. I forget what it was, but you did something that immediately I was like, nope, 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 because I was like, you're going to break whatever I don't even think, think you didn't even let me open the boxes. Ah, that is not true. That is true. You did something that made me like freak out. See, I wanted guidance because I wanted to put all the pieces together like a Lego set, right? It's not a Lego set. I know it's it's not a Lego set. It's over a grand in electronic parts that only fit together one way and you have to be gentle with them. (laughs) I am the salty one here. Yes, you are. I'm salty, not because you 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 were like, oh, I built this for you. I wanted to build it. Mm -hmm. Anyways... If you're not that into PC specs, buying a mid-tier gaming PC, either a laptop or desktop, is a great hassle-free way to get a quality Windows PC that'll serve you well in most situations. The last thing you'll need for any studio is some form of DAW, or a program called a Digital Audio Workstation. You're using Cubase, right? I sure am. There's plenty of DAWs out there for a variety of use cases. Uh, You can go with a free option like Audacity, although that greatly limits your functionality and user experience. I honestly don't think I could record on Audacity now if I tried. (laughs) Another somewhat free, and I use air quotes there, is Reaper. Um, Reaper is 60 bucks, but it's kind of like WinRAR, where it has a 60-day free trial, and then it tells you you need to pay after the 60 days are up, but it still won't lock your usage. Uh, If you do use Reaper like this, support the developers for making a great dog. Just buy it and be a good human. Now, the industry standard is, of course, Pro Tools. Okay, story time. Why don't you use Pro Tools? Didn't you learn learn Pro Tools at your jo- old job at the studio? Yeah, I did. Most studios use Pro Tools, and honestly, I have quite a few gripes with Pro Tools. It's the industry standard, in my opinion, because it was the first to support a lot of features, and it used to really lead the way in functionality. But in recent years, other DAWs have caught up to it feature-wise, and the industry's opinion still just hasn't changed. In my experience, Pro Tools crashes quite a bit, and that stresses me out. Uh, Being in the middle of a session with a client and having a crash is a horrible thing to happen. While you have no control over it, the crash happened on your equipment at your studio, so the client's going to see it as your fault. And that results in lost revenue and even potentially losing an entire session if you don't have automatic backups enabled. Pro Tools also isn't really the most customizable experience. Uh, You can't easily create shortcuts and hotkeys. A lot of third-party software and hardware isn't able to be used with it. In fact, if I remember correctly, you used to have to have a Pro Tools interface to use Pro Tools. Really? I might be wrong, but I know for sure, like the last time I checked, if you wanted more than 32 channels, you needed a dedicated Pro Tools HD rig, which comes with a hefty price tag. Pro Tools itself is actually pretty pricey. They offer a subscription model where the standard version is $30 a month and the Pro version is $80 a month. 
But if you want to buy what they call a perpetual license, it's $600 for the standard version and $2,600 for the pro version. Wow. The kicker with a perpetual license is you only get a year's worth of updates until you're stuck with whatever version you were on unless you pay another $300 for a perpetual license renewal. It's not really perpetual, is it? So kind of... Maybe kind of glad you don't have uh, Pro Tools. Yeah, I mean, this bit. isn't supposed to be a rag on Avid either. I said we weren't going to rag on people this episode. It's not. Like, they can run their business however they want. I just see that as um, too much. Uh, yeah. So why are there so many other DAWs? In my opinion, while all DAWs are capable of your basic recording, mixing, and editing, different DAWs are really sort of optimized for different purposes. I see Cubase as a more customizable alternative to Pro Tools. Sure, it's cheaper, but in this case, I really don't think it's any worse than Pro Tools. It's pretty much the same functionality with some added customization options. I use Cubase for just about everything because it's very well suited to recording analog instruments and MIDI as well as mixing sessions. If you're doing more like film-based scoring and stuff, Steinberg has another DAW called Nuendo with a user interface and a feature set that's a little more suited to that. Logic is the big boy version of Apple's GarageBand that's pretty well suited to the same tasks that Cubase and Pro Tools are, but it's designed to be Mac only. There are ways to get it to run on Windows, but they're pretty jerry-rigged and usually involve installing like Mac OS on a Windows PC or running a virtual machine, which eats up RAM and CPU sources that you'll need to run larger projects. If you're an electronic producer, you may want to consider something like Ableton Live or FL Studio. Both of these are really popular in the electronic music community as they provide feature sets and user interfaces much more tailored to those styles of recording. I'd say the most important thing is doing a fair bit of research on a DAW, maybe downloading the free trial and seeing how you like it, but then choosing one and sticking with it. I can tell you're pretty fast in Cubase in terms of shortcuts and editing, but that probably comes from years of using it and learning it. If you're switching DAWs constantly and having to relearn an entire ecosystem for no good reason, it can really hamper your workflow and your studio's output as a whole. Yeah, 100%. Um, my best advice to you guys would be to, like, uh, like Haley had said, download a bunch of free trials, right, and see which one is most intuitive to you off the rip. Which one of those free trials, when you're just trying to track a session, right, simple thing, which one of those can you get around the fastest in immediately? And unless there's some specific feature that you're looking for, stick with the one that was fastest for you because that means that it's set up in a way similar to your brain, right? Something that you're comfortable with off the rip. And then just don't switch unless you really have a reason to. I mean, it is a huge pain converting older projects from one DAW into another DAW. Ask me how I know, it sucks. <laughs> Um, so switching DAWs all the time without a need is really not conducive to your studio process. Okay, so we've got our room, we've got it treated, we've got our furniture and our computer. Now we can actually get into the fun stuff with the audio gear. The biggest thing you need to ask yourself before making any purchases is what do I want to accomplish with this studio? Audio equipment is expensive. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, it's a huge investment for sure. And if you don't really identify your needs, you can just end up throwing money at either a studio setup or an upgrade without actually targeting what you're trying to do with the space. A studio setup for somebody who's primarily creating beats and maybe doing some light vocal work will look vastly different from somebody like me who's tracking a lot of instruments and bands together. Not to mention your workflow will make a huge difference as well. 
And while there is the adage of buy once, cry once in regards to getting the highest quality gear the first time instead of upgrading tier by tier and ultimately spending more money than you would have originally, it's also not really an option to just not have an interface and not have a mic. You need something to get you by until you get your destination gear. So don't feel pressured to spend an insane amount of money on every piece of your studio or you'll be shamed or something. It's your studio. What we would recommend, however, is targeting your budget at the pieces of gear you'll use the most. Exactly. Some of these things will be the same regardless of your setup, like a quality interface, the studio quality monitors and headphones. Our audio is always running through these, so if they're subpar, our entire project will be mixed subpar. Outside of these, we're really at the whims of our own creativity and purposes here. Since there's so many options and countless different studio possibilities, we're going to use my actual studio upgrade as an example here. Now with this upgrade that I just did, I was happy with pretty much every part of my studio, especially the outboard gear. The issue really lied in three big areas. The first one was eliminating latency. You know, good luck with that. It's always going to be there. We're really just trying to get it as low as we could have. So like we talked about before, the clocking issue between the Behringer's interface and the Tascam was creating this really weird drifting latency issue. This wasn't the fault of the computer or either interface, it was the fact that I was combining interfaces using ASIO for all due to not having enough inputs and outputs to record the main outs of my mixer into the interface while maintaining at least eight independent channels. To better explain why this was a problem, I mean, ASIO for all isn't a driver in itself, it's really more of like a driver wrapper. So think of like, the joke about like three kids in a trench coat that are pretending to be an adult to try to get into like an R-rated movie or whatever. SEO for all is basically doing that with interface drivers. It's multiple interface drivers in a trench coat presenting itself to Windows as one driver and that creates some problems. Kind of like the kids when they're all sitting on each other's shoulders or whatever and they fall off. <laughs> I don't know. Everybody's seen that skit before. <laughs> now the second issue was headphone mixes. When you have clients recording together, they all need to hear themselves. Each artist has a preference of what they want to hear in order to keep time with the band. Some vocalists want to hear themselves front and center, some don't want to hear themselves at all. Some artists want a metronome, some don't. To accomplish this, we need to feed the artists a headphone mix that has different levels for each track. Now I accomplish this by using the aux mixes on my mixer, and with the Behringer I really only had two aux ends, allowing me two headphone mixes but I was also using those for the outboard gear, so even if I wanted to, it would have been difficult. Here, I wanted at least a minimum of four, allowing a guitarist, a bassist, a drummer, and a vocalist to all have independent mixes tracking together. The last issue had to do with the mixer itself. I wasn't a big fan of the sound of the channel strips on the mixer. Uh, each mixer does have its own sound to it, with its own EQ section and sound quality, and while the Behringer was good for a long time, uh, as I grew and got better gear really just stopped cutting it. One of the primary reasons that I mix through a board and record the main outs is not only control, but the analog warmth that mixing through a console can provide. Identifying these issues from the start allows us to focus our effort and our budget on the pieces of gear that matter the most, rather than just throwing money at a problem. The biggest thing to pay attention to here is that all your gear works together in the way that you want it to. Audio equipment is pretty modular by design and can be used in a variety of ways to meet your needs in different situations. Usually what I've noticed with you in the past is that you'll try to create a really detailed setup that relies on a key feature, but that feature just doesn't work the way you want it to and it actually comes down to hooking everything up together. Exactly. 
In this case, I knew I needed an interface that had at least 10 inputs and 10 outputs, ideally 12 outputs. This way I could use eight of the inputs for my actual sources, eight of the outputs for my track assignments to the mixer, and the remaining two inputs and outputs for the loopback from the mixer and the outputs to the monitors. In this case, I ended up going with the Scarlett 18i20, an eight input, 10 output interface. But? Yeah, only eight inputs, not 10. Thankfully, the Scarlett has a SPDIF connection on the rear, allowing me to use a second interface with it to extend the inputs and outputs. Isn't that the original problem, though? You were using two interfaces together and they wouldn't sync. Yes. However, the SPDIF solves that problem. SPDIF, or SPDIF, stands for Sony Philips Digital Interface Format. And while the connectors may look like the RCA connectors for audio sources, they actually transmit a digital signal. This digital signal is somewhat limited, only allowing a stereo channel, but in addition to transmitting the audio signal, it also transmits the clocking information. In this case, I use the 18i20 along with a Scarlett 8i6 as my SPDIF converter. I'm using both the SPDIF inputs and outputs, giving me a total of 10 inputs and 12 outputs, allowing me the opportunity to assign 10 separate channels to the mixer, a nice little added bonus. Since SPDIF is carrying the clock information, all I have to do is ensure my interfaces are both set to the same sample rate, in this case a pristine 96kHz, and they'll sync together with no issues or added latency. Overall, this fixes my first issue, that drifting latency problem is eliminated. I'm using only one driver, just digitally extending the main interface via SPDIF. Since I've got a pretty beefy CPU, I can set my buffer size all the way down to 16 samples, making a grand total of 4 milliseconds of round-trip latency, much lower than I can notice. That's a really fun word. What? Spidiff. 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 Really? Spidiff. Spidiff. <sighs> Anyways, so that's the first issue. <laughs> Let's get into the headphone mixes now. I'm really excited about this because, like I was saying earlier, when we're recording, I really, really don't like hearing my own voice. Before, you weren't able to give me a separate mix without my voice. Yep, so this is kind of a two-parter, both the mixer and the headphone amps. We'll get into the mixer later, but this upgrade includes a mixer with four separate aux ends. Each one of these aux ends is routed to one of two AKG headphone amplifiers, each of which has two independent channels. The only downside to this is that aux ends are mono, so I'm using the splitters to create a stereo signal into the headphone mix out of the mono sends. Anybody using the headphone mix won't be able to hear any sort of panning effects, but that's ultimately not important in the grand scheme of things. And now onto the mixer, I assume? You bet. Uh, for me, an analog mixing console is a requirement. It's what I'm used to, it's my preference, and I absolutely hate mixing in the box. Granted, there are some drawbacks to doing it this way. Uh, it's not like mixing in the DAW where I pull up my project and all my fader positions and EQ adjustments are in the same spot. I actually have to take pictures of the board when I finish a project to be able to sort of recall the settings that I had on a given session. If you are interested in the feel of using an analog console while still retaining the ability to recall settings by project, there are products called control surfaces, which typically have motorized faders and LED set knobs that allow you the same sensation while actually controlling your DAW settings via USB connection. They're pretty neat little devices. Oh yeah, control surfaces are great. The only reason I don't use one is that you lose the analog warmth of the mix down through the console. If I had both, it would take up a huge amount of space, not to mention being somewhat redundant. 
Oh, you're huge on analog. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not an analog purist by any means. Like, I'm not someone who's going to sit here and say, like, oh, I can hear the digital compression in that. Like, it, it's just a preference thing for me. Were you telling me that Dave had a board that did that? That did what? That the um, the motorized faders? Yes. So he had the big Amic recall console in the control room, but he also had a Behringer X32 in the live room. So when people were just renting out the space for like rehearsals or whatever, uh, we'd mix the live room on the X32. And the X32, it was a 32-channel mixer, but it only had 16-channel strips. So when you would move from bank one to bank two, the faders would, because they were motorized, they would move to the channels or to the positions of the channels on the other bank. Uh, all the knobs were just LED, so they showed where the knob was turned to by the amount of LEDs around it, if that makes sense. Uh, it was pretty useful because you could use 32 channels on a smaller board that was only a 16-channel size board. And you could also, uh, I can't remember if the board put out its own Wi-Fi signal or if you needed a Wi-Fi router with it, but you could use a tablet and control the mixer from like in the pit or somewhere else in the rehearsal room so you could hear what the audience or what the band was actually hearing while you were mixing it through a tablet. That it was pretty neat. fancy. Yeah. Now, for this upgrade, I ended up going with an Allen & Heath Z14. Uh, these guys are built like tanks. The channel strips sound great, and with 14 channels, it's giving me plenty of room to individually assign each track in the DAW to a channel. It's got those four individual aux ends, like we talked about before for the headphone mixes. The only thing it's missing from the Behringer is internal effects, which I wasn't using anyway since this isn't a live mixer. While this guy seems to be the most boring part, it's actually the piece that makes everything possible, and I'm really excited to get to work with it. Now the last big thing that wasn't necessarily an exciting equipment or gear upgrade was the fact that I finally buckled down, got a measurement microphone and some room correction software, and I got to see how bad my room really was. I always knew that my room had a little too much low-end accentuation in it. Uh, in plainer words, the bass seemed really loud, much louder than it actually was. But I really didn't think it was that bad until I actually did this. It took me about 20 minutes to take the room measurement and the software that I was using, both IK Multimedia's ARC3 system and Room EQ Wizard, displayed it on a graph for me to actually see. Like I said, I always knew the bass was an issue, because when I'd play my mixes back in the car, they'd seem really harsh and trebly. But the advantage of going this route was the fact that now I can apply a correction curve to my master bus so I can make more accurately informed mix decisions. It's a game changer. I mean, I showed you the difference, yeah, I showed you the difference yesterday of what I was actually hearing versus what the mix actually sounded like. What do you think, Ailes? It was such a crazy difference, like night <laughs> and day difference. Yeah, and that's coming from someone who also, like, does not know audio like that. I mean, it... I have ears. Yeah, but you know <laughs> what I'm saying. Um, yeah, it, huge difference. I'm really, really happy with it. Um, all of my mixes before this were like super trebly, and I've been going back to the last few and just remixing them with uh, the room correction software on and then bouncing them out to my phone and going and listening to them in the car. And they sound much different now. I'm very happy with it. So that's your upgrade taken care of. For those people that are still following along and considering building their own studio, what else will they need? Well, of course, you're going to need things to actually record. I mean, we're kind of assuming here that you already have this stuff. I can't really think of a situation where somebody who doesn't play an instrument or sing would just outright 
build a studio from scratch, but you'll need at least mics and mic stands in most situations. It's a good idea to have a variety of microphone types, like dynamics, condensers, and ribbons, as well as different models within each type, as each model can have its own flavor to it. If you're a guitar or a bass player, you may want something like a direct box and plugins or two notes so that you can record your guitar signal without a mic. My most used piece of equipment in my studio is probably my two notes, as it allows me to crank the volume on my tube amps without increasing the volume in the room and get a great clean recording regardless of background noise. I remember you thought you broke your two notes once and you had nearly had a mental breakdown. Oh yeah, full existential crisis. Um, thankfully, I was able to fix it. Um, but yeah, now it is securely Velcro taped to the stand that it's sitting on <laughs> so it can't fall off. That was a horrible day. If you're a beat maker or an electronic producer, you'll probably want a MIDI controller of some sort. Depending on your preference for playing, you can go for a piano style controller or a beat pad style controller, sometimes even a combination of both. I tend to use the piano style keys more, so I've got a nice little Arturia Keylab 49 for my primary and an Akai MPD-18 for when I need more beat pads than the included 8 on the Arturia. If you're looking to record drums, you'll need plenty of mics for an acoustic kit, not to mention a space where you can actually play the drums without getting evicted for a noise complaint. In your case, I know you use um, electric drums. Is that a preference thing, or, or what? Yeah, not really. I mean, we have neighbors that I don't think would appreciate a full acoustic drum kit going. And if I like it, no. No, nobody likes it, especially not at the hours that I record. Like, I record in the middle of the night. Uh, That's fair. Yeah. Drums are insanely loud, but the electric kit can have its advantages. As long as your electric kit has detailed velocity sensors, the realism and quality of your drum tracks is really dependent on the drum plugin you're using. I'm primarily using XLN's Addictive Drums, and I'm really happy with it. The kit I have has mesh heads, so it feels pretty realistic on the drums themselves. The cymbals are a different story. And I can change the type of sampled kit in the plugin. Instead of keeping a rack of snares and cymbals for different situations, it's all stored in the computer and changed at the touch of a button, so it's the best I can use for the situation. What don't you like about the cymbals? They don't feel realistic. Well, yeah, they're like rubber. I, I, I think they're super neat how you can actually choke the cymbals. Oh yeah, I mean, it's great. I wanted it to be as realistic of an electric kit as I could. Um, right. It's, there's no real way, at least that I know of, to make a electric cymbal feel more realistic. I mean, they're the heads feel great. They feel nice and realistic because they're mesh, but the cymbals, uh, they're, they're good. It, they just don't feel realistic. That's fair. Wow, well, I think that covers pretty much everything studio-wise, and, 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 we got through this whole thing without once recommending you spent half a grand on LED strips for your room. <laughs> you're, you're going after some of those YouTube videos, aren't you? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, one, one of them, you know what, no, I'm not going to call out specific ones, that would be mean, that's not the right thing to do. They're cool, but I I feel like that's not really a priority when you're first building your studio. Yeah, if you don't have a microphone, don't spend your studio budget on LED strips. Exactly. <laughs> if you don't have studio monitors, don't spend your, your budget on LED strips. Like, get the important stuff first and make sure that your sound quality is as good as you can get it. And then maybe worry about the LED strips. Unless you find them, like, on sale somewhere super cheap and you're you're there anyway. I mean, it's your money. Situational. Yeah. 
And without getting into the nitty-gritty nitty of every little thing, I think we've touched on most of the biggest parts of a studio. If you guys have any further questions on your specific use case, don't hesitate to shoot us an email. Uh, we're happy to take a look at what you got going on and provide a second set of eyes or some advice. I got really lucky having a really kind boss who took me under his wing when I was younger and gave me a great foundation of knowledge, and I'm happy to help pay it forward to somebody who really doesn't have anyone to ask. I know how stressful and difficult that can be. You know, talking about studio stuff this episode got me thinking. Did you know the first actual DAW program was called Soundstream's Digital Editing System, and it was released as far back as 1977? Oh god, what computer did it run on? Believe it or not, it was actually like its own computer. It used a 14-inch hard disk and a hardware oscilloscope, uh, like a little display of a graph, not even an actual screen, to edit audio recorded to the hard disk drive. It did have a screen just for controlling the program, but all the actual editing was done on an oscilloscope. That's crazy. Yeah, the music industry was pretty slow to react to this hardware, with most studios sticking with analog tape and this project really being more like a proof of concept. In the later 80s, Digidesign released the Sound Tools DAW, a precursor to Pro Tools that could be used for two-track audio only, primarily for audio mastering. It wasn't until 1991 when Digidesign released the first version of Pro Tools that studios actually began to embrace the digital age and give up their tape-based systems. This was primarily due to the fact that Pro Tools sought to emulate the function and routing of analog mixing consoles and hardware, preventing recording engineers from having to relearn an entire new method of recording and signal routing. Do DAWs still do that? For the most part, yeah, they still kind of emulate um, analog systems. But that honestly begs the question, does it really matter? I mean, the whole reason Pro Tools emulated analog hardware was to make the transition from analog recording to digital easier. Yeah, I, I guess if you already start learning in a DAW, it doesn't really matter if it emulates hardware as long as it's easy to understand. Exactly. Like, the whole point in the beginning was trying to convince people, like, hey, you can use a computer instead of a tape machine. Join but now, the dark side. Yeah. Now, if everybody's learning on computers, does it really have to emulate a tape machine? Is there any purpose to that? Anyway, I know it's been a long one, but if you guys are still here hanging out with us, I certainly appreciate it, and I hope you learned something. Uh, reach out over Facebook, Reddit, or email us at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com to suggest topics or just chat about gear. You can also check out our website, pedalsandpickups.com, for more information on every episode, merch for the show, and all kinds of fun stuff. Now, I know we normally say this like outro the same way, but seriously, for this one, if you guys are really into setting up your home studio and you want some more in-depth discussion on the topics that we went into, uh, I spent a lot of time on this episode's blog post. In fact, I'm still not done with it. I have to finish after we're done recording. But uh, yeah, check that out for sure. You'll find all kinds of stuff, including like if you're using a Windows PC, how to optimize uh, Windows for audio production. There's three big things that you want to worry about, like selective USB suspend, system sounds, and CPU core parking. And in there, I show you all about how to do that. Anyway, speaking of merch, why not buy a t-shirt? You know, I go around and I see people all day wearing these just horrible t-shirts, right? Vineyard vines, a little whale, like what is that logo? Whales don't live in a vineyard, they live in the ocean. At least I'm pretty sure. You double check me on that. I'm, I'm pretty sure, yeah. Pretty sure, right? Yeah. Izod, a little crocodile, all these little animal logos that are smaller than like my thumb. That's boring. Who wants that? Nobody. Do you want logos that are smaller than your thumb on your clothes? No, never. No, it reminds you of like a school uniform requirement. Why not go on our website? And why not pick up 
a huge record logo, a huge classic Pedals and Pickups podcast logo t-shirt. It'll be stylish. It'll be fancy. You can get it in multiple colors. People will comment and know that you had nothing better to do than to sit down for an hour and listen to two people talk about setting up a home studio. And if anybody else listens to the show around you and you both wear that t-shirt, you're going to have like that Spider-Man meme moment where you both encounter each other in the street and point at each other like you're, like you're clones. It's going to be super cool. Maybe I'm reading too much into that. I don't know. That's what I do if somebody's wearing the same shirt as me. Very do awkwardly you, stop in the street and point at them. And do then they, you really? Yeah, sometimes. And then they like look at me like I'm mentally dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys like the show and you want to see it continue, consider supporting the show on Patreon. Every dollar goes right back into the podcast for hosting fees, gear, and equipment to make the show. Either way, I was happy to sit here and hang out with you guys. I'm sure Haley was too. And I'm really excited to get working on back to our regularly scheduled programming this next week with this new new and improved studio setup. Um, it's very fun to work with. The workflow is much smoother than before. Although I'm sure in a week I'll think of something else that I need to fix. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, you know me. I can't stop. Yeah, that's a problem. All right. Until then, take care. <laughs>